Hi everyone, I hope you're really well this week. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and more alive, whatever that looks like for you. So maybe this podcast is going to inspire you to look at your health and self-care. Maybe it's thinking about your career and making work work for you. Maybe it's looking at your relationships or your relationship with yourself and finally addressing that inner critic and making a commitment to being kinder to yourself. So I chat to all sorts of well-being experts and game changers to help you become your healthiest, happiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. So before we get on to this week's episode, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about Peppy, who are sponsoring this week. Peppy is a brilliant new business that connects parents with the expert help that, let's face it, we all need from time to time. So we've all done it, haven't we? Googled for hours on end looking for either a therapist or a lactation consultant or a physio. And I just think it's so hard to actually know who is good. Well, Peppy have done all the hard work for us. All the expert practitioners are fully vetted and they've got the highest level of qualifications and experience. And because I've got your back, I've got your 20% discount code off your first booking. So if you go onto Peppy, P-E-P-P-Y, have a look at the website, search what you're looking for, whether that's a therapist, a physio, a lactation consultant, or any type of expert that can help you on your parenting journey pop in what you're looking for, pop in your postcode, find someone that you like the look of, and when you go to book, pop in Peppy, P-E-P-P-Y, 20 at the checkout, and you will get 20% off. And I also just wanted to thank you for all of your feedback about last week's episode with Dr. Gabor Marte. I've got to say, I've been pretty blown away by it. I've had hundreds of emails, direct messages and comments from you telling me that that episode was life-changing and Kate on Instagram actually said every parent needs to listen to this so if you haven't listened to it yet I really would encourage you it's by far the most popular episode I've ever done and I just want to say how much it means to both me and Gabor that you are getting so much out of it. So on to this week's episode. It is with the rather wonderful Marina Fogel, who is an author. She's host of the Parenthood podcast, which I'm sure a lot of you know and love. She's also a founder of Bump Class, which is antenatal courses preparing mothers for parenthood. I went to Marina's house, which was beautiful, by the way, and we had a really honest chat, a really honest and far-ranging chat, actually. So I started off asking Marina about her relationship to herself and she's known to be one of the kindest, warmest people in the parenting industry and I wanted to know whether she extends that relationship to herself, so that's where we start. We then talk about her marriage. She is married to Ben Fogel, who is, you know, relatively famous, a lot of you will know of him. So she was really honest. We talked about marriage counselling and both of us shared our experiences around that. We've been married for 
I think nearly 13 years now and I think it's so easy to fall into a bit of a routine where you don't make an effort with each other because quite frankly life is such an effort that you just want to let your guard down and just flop in front of the TV and not really engage and I think that it can get a bit dangerous. We also talked about grief as she really tragically lost her son at eight months and we talk about how on earth she has managed to process that and I found it incredibly touching and raw and honest and at the end of the interview I asked Marina about her self-care. Like I find it inconceivable to sit down and read the paper at four o'clock in the afternoon but that's okay I'm like Marina that is fine you know you're working a 15 hour day it's okay for you to have a little bit of a break. So quite a different interview from last week but every week I aim to bring you something different. I aim to bring you something honest and something that can help you relate to your own experiences. And I know that this podcast will do that. So here's the episode. And if you did enjoy it, as always, please rate, review and share. Here it is. Well, Marina, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, we're actually recording this in your house, so I need to say thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit odd being interviewed by someone else in my kitchen, but I'm sure I'll get my head around it. It'll be quite healthy. Well, I'm hoping that you're going to be so relaxed that you're going to be deeply honest and we're going to get lots of, you know, juicy secrets out of you because you feel so relaxed in your own house. <laughs> you're known, you know, and I listened to your podcast and I've followed your work for years. You're known as being one of the kindest warmest and least judgmental people you know who teach parenting and you're so active in this space and you're so honest and open and I want to thank you for that oh I'm like really touched I definitely don't think of myself as that but thank you that is definitely of all the things I would want to be those adjectives would be right up there good well that's meant from my heart that's how you come across and I think that's rare Actually, I do think that's rare. But what I wanted to ask you is that given that you're so good at this sort of kindness and warmth and non-judgment to others, are you good at giving that back to yourself? I'm definitely not as kind to myself as I am to others. And, you know, sometimes I can not be that nice to others. Like I definitely find myself, you know, with the kind of closest in your life, like sometimes I can be a bitch. Sometimes I can turn around and say something and I'll regret it. Or I'll say something to Ben or to my sisters or something like that. But I think what I have learnt through life and also I think by doing the job that I do is that, you know, apology is so important. And messing up sometimes and saying the wrong thing is something that we all do and we can't be afraid of. And, you know, we've just had a big, long conversation around perfection and we can't be perfect all the time. And that acknowledgement is so important in terms of us, but also in terms of modeling that to our children. I think, you know, I do screw up and I don't always react in the right way, but I always reflect. I remember very early on realizing that when you make a mistake, you've got two options. You can either feel really miserable about it and just tell yourself how you screwed up or you can learn from it and you say, well, fine, I've done that. I can't reverse time, but I can make damn sure that's not going to happen again. And I think about how that's not going to happen again. And so when it comes to behavior, regretful behavior, I will always say, I'm really sorry. And very often I'll be conscious that maybe I said something that was misinterpreted or that I shouldn't have said and that on reflection was really an unwise thing to do. And rather than thinking, well, I won't say anything and maybe it'll go away, for my own self, I will either make a call or write an email or have a face-to-face -face conversation to say, 
I'm really sorry, I should have said that. And it's really bugging me that I said it. And I don't want you to make sure that it's misinterpreted. And sometimes people are like, oh, no, no, no. I mean, I didn't even think about that. But at least from my point of view, I clarified. Like I was with a bunch of mums the other day and we were having a conversation about schools. And I made a comment that I thought that could be construed as really xenophobic. And I'm not that person. And it really, really bugged me that that could have been interpreted that way. And I had to then contact the mum and go, listen, I feel really guilty for what I said. And I'm worried that maybe it came out in a way that I didn't intend it to. And in the end, she hadn't interpreted like I thought she had, but I was really glad that I clarified it rather than risk her going around going, actually, she's not a very nice person and she has these kind of horrible thoughts. So for me, that sort of acknowledgement and vocalising when I've messed up and apologising is really, really important Mm. and teaches me a lot. And it's such an important thing that you raise because the one side of it is that humility. And I think that that's what comes through definitely in your public persona is this real humility. And I think that's where that word non-judgment came to me as I was thinking about you. The other side of that, of course, is overthinking about worrying about what people think about. Is that something that you identify with? Do you tend to worry about what people think of you? You have a relatively public life. Is that a concern? Is that something that worries you and bothers you? I think it worries everyone a little bit, but I also am quite pragmatic and I slightly always have been. I'm lucky that I definitely have the ability to sort of let things go. And actually that acknowledgement of letting things go. Again, that's something I learned from one of my podcast guests. If you've screwed up, and you've apologised, you can't keep on feeling guilty about it. You've just got to let it go at the end of the day. And I definitely try and think of the one thing I'd let go at the end of my day. And that might be that someone's annoyed with me for some reason, or someone's put a nasty comment on something that I've said or misinterpreted something I've said. But you can't please all the people all the time. So I think that, again, that is very much something I've learned from what I do and the wisdom that surrounds me. You know, I also don't engage in controversial subjects that much. I don't engage in politics. But I see it, you know, through Ben, who also, he's not out to create conflict, to say controversial things. And I sort of counsel him a bit on that because he's obviously got a much bigger following than I do and a lot more reaction. And we talk about it together. And I say, Ben, you just have to let it go. And when you're criticised in the public sphere, it's so easy to take it to heart. And it's amazing, I think, how many people who have a big public persona, who the criticisers think, oh, well, it's nothing. It's like a tiny little arrow that doesn't even hit their skin. It does actually really, really affect them. But we talk about a lot. I sort of try to rationalise with him about what really matters and what doesn't matter and what you just have to let go and acknowledge that that's all you can do. But I think that communication is really helpful for both of us. Mm, There's so many nuggets in there. I love that practice that you said, what's the one thing I Let let go of at the end of every day? Do you do that most days? Yeah. I have a little notebook by my bed and I write down whatever made me happy in that day. I guess you could call it a gratitude journal, but it's literally just an old book that was just sitting around. And I think it's really nice to finish the day thinking about those positive highlights. But actually weirdly, and this wasn't something I anticipated when I started doing it, is that it's such a nice thing to look back over because those little high points in the day, you forget them. And very often they're funny things that the kids said. Sometimes it's like, I had a really good brownie on the way back from work today. It might just be a tiny little thing, but it's still generated joy. And I think that the last thing before you go to bed, you can think about those positive things. You're much more likely to sort of wake up in a positive frame of mind. And it's something I do with the kids. I sort of say, tell me your favourite parts of the day as we go to bed. I was 
was talking to a friend of mine who's struggling a bit with mood and, you know, I said, listen, why don't you just try this? Because in all of our lives, there are, well, I hope in all of our lives, there are little glimmers of something that made you happy. It might even be that, I don't know, you cooked something really good or the sun was out. That was it. And that made you happy. And I think focusing on those rather than the maybe more noisy things that weren't so good about your day can only be beneficial. Mm, it's so important, isn't it? And you talked about some of the wisdom that you've learned from your podcast guests. Are there any other things like that that really stand out that you've learned about yourself or parenting that you could share that have really changed you and changed your life, like that simple practice of gratitude? One thing that I learned was that it's no good bringing our children up as perfect parents. Like it's so important for us to mess up because by messing up, we acknowledge that mistakes are an inevitable part of life and actually a really important part of growing up. But also learning and teaching your children how to apologize properly and from the heart, which, you know, it's a skill that so many adults can't do. I mean, I know grown-ups who mess up and they can't say the S word. They're like... I'm not a perfect mother. And I know that sometimes on Instagram, it's so easy to sort of look at someone's life and go, oh God, well, she never screws up. And I do. And probably the thing that I do most consistently is I get quite stressed about being late. And it's often, you know, when you're getting the kids out of the house in the morning and school starts at eight and there's like either swim squad or they've got a poetry reading or they've got to bring a pound in for the jeans for jeans, whatever it is, there's always something. And I'm, I feel like it's a running a marathon. I very often leave the house. I'm like, guys, come on, you didn't do this. And, and I sort of end up shouting at them. And then I will always say, guys, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have got stressed about that. But we then go to school and we talk about that. And we talk about why my behavior wasn't ideal and what I'm going to try and change about it. And I think it's so important to model bad behavior as well as good behavior, because you're also then teaching them to exist in an environment where people aren't perfect the whole time. And I do think there's so much pressure for us to be, it starts when you're pregnant and then the decorating of this perfect nursery and their wonderful playroom and your beautiful house that's got all those little things and it's warm and everything the whole time. And, and if then as a person, you're only ever balanced and kind and reasonable to them, that's what you're teaching them to exist. So then when they do find the bitch or the person that says things that they shouldn't or the person that's a bit sort of lax and not that interested in them, which, you know, these are all personality traits that they're going to encounter in life, then they're not going to know how to deal with them. So if you can model that slightly less perfect behavior, you're actually teaching them one of life's most important lessons. I totally agree. And I had a guest on the podcast who said, love is made in the repair and I just love that. I found it so powerful and so true that actually it's when we can get humble enough to go, I'm really sorry, and explain a bit about what was going on, that love grows, isn't it? Because it's how it works. Yeah. But well, you know, wisdom too is grown in the repair. And I think you and I can both talk from the heart about that. You know, there's no doubt that the most difficult parts of my life have been the most steepest learning curves. And, you know, I've learned so much from those experiences that I wouldn't actually take them away I wouldn't and have you had one challenge in particular that stands out in your life that you've really changed from or learned from and could you share a bit about what that was and what wisdom you gained as a result from that so I mean without a doubt the hardest part of my life was when my younger son was stillborn which was nearly five years ago now and it was totally unexpected and you know I didn't know anyone who'd experienced a stillbirth I was an antenatal teacher but I 
literally didn't enter my radar. It's something that just doesn't happen. And when it suddenly happened and when I woke up from general anesthetic and I was told that my son had died, I just couldn't believe it had happened. And really for like five, six weeks after that, I would have these moments in my day where I was like, am I dreaming? Or did this really actually happen to me? And to be totally honest, I still have those moments. I think, has this just been a dream? Because it was just so unbelievable. I remember thinking, gosh, how do people cope with their child? I mean, how would anyone cope with that? And you do cope and you realise that you're stronger than you realise. And that's so empowering for a start. I feel more like a superhero. I'm like, I can deal with like probably one of the worst knocks life can give you. And that is actually a really amazing feeling. I know that sounds a bit weird, but a lot of fear is centered around what you haven't experienced because you haven't been tested. And so you don't know how you're going to respond and to know that you can deal with that situation and you can get through it and you can continue putting one foot in the front of the other is really good, I think, for your mental well-being. And that's that's so inspirational because as you say, you know, as mothers, that is the worst thing that can ever happen. I was lucky to have two children that were healthy and that I sort of think, well, there's just no way I could have done it without them there because I would have had nothing to live for. And yet I've had some people say to me, well, the problem is that once you become a mother, only then do you realise how much love you would have had for that child. So I sort of look at women who've experienced this with their first child and think, how can they cope? And I think some people look at me and think, well, she's had that love of two children. She knows what she's missing out on. So it is a bit of the, what you haven't experienced always seems a bit more daunting. But I think we also became stronger as a family. I became a better mother. I remember one of the most important lessons I learned was around talking to my children and the honesty because Ludo and Iona were three and four at the time. So they were really little and you know, they saw me being whisked off in an ambulance and then they saw me three days later in intensive care. And it was really traumatic for them, especially Ludo, who's a real thinker. And I remember about a week later when I was out of hospital, he kept on saying, mommy, I feel so sick. And I remember thinking, God, has he got a tummy bug or something? And then I realized that it was anxiety. It was that fear, you know, you get the pit of your stomach, but he didn't know how to articulate it. And it was just like that feeling in my tummy, like when I'm sick. And I went to see a grief counsellor and she was so helpful for me. But I said, you know, should my son come and see you? And she said, you know what, we don't have a relationship. It's very difficult for a child to walk in and see a new person and then immediately pour their heart out, much more difficult than for an adult. So she said, it's really important that you talk to him. And I remember so well sitting down on my bed and I'd said to her, like, how honest am I? And she said, as honest as you need to be, like, you need to be as honest as you can be with him. You can't hold anything back. And I said, but, you know, what if I cry? And she said, Marina, crying is such an important thing to be able to do. And if you never cry in front of your children, you're teaching them that it's not okay to cry. And crying is so important. And I was in that phase where I had to cry like, I don't know, it was almost like vomiting. I needed to get it out. I would build up and I'd just have a big, visceral, very physical cry. And then I'd be so fine again. And I remember sitting on my bed with him and, and I just said, Ludo, do you have any questions? And I told him exactly what happened. And we looked at photos of Willem. And I said, you know, do you have any questions? And he said, mommy, but why were you so sick? I'm worried that you're not okay and you're going to die. And I said, 
what was wrong with me is no longer wrong with me. They've fixed me. It's not going to happen again. So you, you don't need to worry about that. But that wasn't what I anticipated that he was worrying about. He needed to be able to ask me that question and I needed to invite him. And, you know, sitting and showing a four-year-old pictures of their dead brother, I mean, you'd have thought there's just no way I could do that. But he was so resilient and it made me realise that children are able to take a lot more truth and shit than, quite frankly, we give them credit for. And that, I think made my relationship really honest with them. And I have talked to them now about everything. I just kind of told them all the swear words. I said, listen, I don't want you to use them, but I respect you and trust you enough not to use them. I'm going to tell you these words so that you can recognize when people use them and recognize when you hear them in the street or maybe on the radio or in songs. But I trust you that I'm not going to use them. And they're really good like that. I've told them about sex. I've told them about drugs in a way that's sort of age appropriate. But I think that's cultivated a kind of respect that they know that if I say, don't worry about this or do worry, I'm telling them the truth. I'm not telling them some half-baked story. And I think that has been really crucial for our relationship and hopefully will be kind of going forward. Mm, And that made me well up, that image that I got of him sat on your bed because of course there's children and and I have some memories actually of you just want to feel safe. And a big part of that is is knowing that you're parents are going to be okay and that was obviously the fear dominating his little mind so yeah you gosh that was fantastic wasn't it that you were resilient enough in yourself through that time by allowing yourself to grieve that you could create that space for him well I was really lucky and I've got to say sounds like a great counsellor yeah she's an amazing counsellor and I'd never had any therapy before Willem died. And I remember thinking, I mean, what can therapy do? I mean, I just lost my baby. You know, how can talking make this any better? But what she taught me was how to understand my grief and how to understand what I was feeling and how to understand how Ben was feeling. And and also, like, there's a big physical manifestation of grief. You know, it's not just emotional. You literally feel different. I remember felt so tired and so hungry and forgetful. I couldn't remember anything actually to the point that I thought maybe I was a bit brain damaged and you know she sort of reassured me and just taught me about how grief works and how it affects every part of your brain and she described it to me as you've got a certain amount of headspace and when you've had a traumatic event that results in grief so much of your brain is spent dealing and processing this grief that there's just simply not enough space in your brain to remember your keys and to remember your phone or because you're emotionally exhausted you just need to sleep and sleep and sleep and that was really reassuring but also I think she gave me a lot of the language to talk to other people to talk to Ben to talk to my kids and that conversation you know I probably only saw her about 10 or 15 times but it was such a helpful process for me and I inevitably get contacted by people who've had similar situations and I always just say it might not be what you feel like doing but give therapy a go give counseling a go because if you get the right person you know that was a real tipping point for me I could have become very introverted and not wanted to talk about it and that was probably my instinct and I come from that kind of family too where I'm so much more of a sharing person than I was brought up in but this was absolutely the right way and I credit her completely with with showing me that road. Mm, That was so inspiring to 
talk about not only just how these horrendous things that happen in our lives can be used, as you say, for wisdom, but also how you approach that and having that strength and courage, because it does take courage, doesn't it, to go and talk about the thing that we probably least want to talk about, which is the trauma that's going on. I used to have a really physiological fear. I used to get really shaky whenever I talked about it. And it was weird because I think in those sort of months after it happened, it was when I was prepared for a conversation, that was fine. But if suddenly it came up and I wasn't expecting it, like I remember walking my daughter to nursery and I bumped into one of the mums who I didn't know very well in the nursery. And she's like, oh, you had your baby. I was like, yes, but he was still born. He died. And she was like, oh my God, she burst into tears. And I was then comforting her. And I was like, oh. and you know, when you're just like this sort of I'm about to break this horrible piece of news to you because I can't lie. And I just become really trembly. I remember I had this locket with his name on and it was about two months after I was at a dinner with some friends and there was this girl I didn't really know. She took it and she's like, oh my God, that's so pretty. Is Willem's your son? And I was like, yes. And she goes, oh, how old is he? And, and then I just had to tell her. It was almost that I just felt so bad for her that we were in this really nice situation, having a glass of wine at this friend of mine's dinner. And suddenly I was turning the conversation to baby death, baby loss. And I felt so guilty around that, which is ridiculous, but you do. And, and I would just immediately become very trembly, but it got better with time. And how do you feel about it, talking about it now? I think it's really good to keep on talking it. I don't want to say I enjoy talking about it, but in a way I do because he lives on in my memory. And I think it's really important to revisit your emotions and to continue learning from them because I also know that lots of other people have found the fact that I've talked about this really, really helpful. And that is really reassuring in a way too. You know, I still get sad and actually Ludo probably gets really emotional. He's buried in the churchyard at my, my parents have a house in the country and there's a little churchyard where we're all christened and where my grandparents are. And we're always there. And at the time I didn't realize the importance of a grave. I remember just thinking, I mean, he's dead. What's the point of burying him? I just, what's the point? But I did it anyway. And I now in retrospect realize the importance of having someone where you can go and remember that person. And it makes him a bigger part of our family narrative. So we often stop by there, we'll pick some wildflowers on a walk, we'll put chocolates or sweets or whatever it is on his grave. And it's just an opportunity to remember him. And, and I do think that it's so easy to forget, especially for Ludo and Iona, whose lives are so full of other things. And yet I think that sort of reminder that they did have a brother is really important. And also in terms of that tackling of grief, you know, yes, it's sad, but the sad thing is that he died, not that we're remembering him. And I think having a grave is certainly for us, it's a really healing thing to be able to go and spend time thinking about him. Mm. And you've absolutely helped people. I know that. I know that for sure. And that's, you know, what we were talking about is some of the hardest things, the most unimaginable things that we go through you know, can be used to help and support others, which is finding those like nuggets, isn't it, in these horrendous experiences. You talked a bit about Ben and I was wondering, you know, on the surface of it, you know, if you look at pictures of you guys, it looks like you have this, which I'm sure you do, you know, it's a hugely successful marriage and this wonderful life. And again, you've been really honest and open, which I know I really appreciate and I'm sure everyone out there does too, about some of the challenges that come from marriage and being married. And I wondered if we could change tack and talk about that a bit 
you know, what are some of the challenges that you find with being married, you know, and to someone in the public eye, you know, he's an explorer, he's often off, isn't he, doing these amazing things that he does. How do you cope with that as his wife and, you know, having a family together? I mean, I do think this whole travel is a bit of a double-edged sword. I think on the one hand, it's hard parenting alone. And when he's gone for long periods of time, and I literally am a single mother, there's a certain amount you can do on your own. And then sometimes you're like, I just would love someone to put them into bed. You know, when you're, Iona is such a negotiator and we have endless discussions about whether it's really is time to go to bed. You know, if you're just exhausted. You just think, I'd love someone just to help me out. You know, and there are times that it's really lonely. I found especially those early years when the children were little, you know, now we can have hilarious conversations and they genuinely inspire and entertain me. But when they were little, like toddlers, you're not really ever having rewarding conversations with them. It's lovely being with them. But I felt that loneliness a lot, especially at the weekends when, you know, all my friends were having their family time I didn't want to intrude but I just felt really like I'm a very much a people person you know and I remember Ben saying once well it doesn't if you're really struggling at the weekends maybe we can get someone to help out at the weekends I was like I don't want someone to help out I want you I want us as a family time but I also think that time apart is really good for us as a couple I think it really enriches our relationship because very often he's gone for like two three weeks at a time and I really miss him and I think that's a really important thing to feel I look forward to him coming home I get excited and I properly hug him and kiss him when he comes through the door I think about what underwear I'm wearing we do fun things when he's back so we'll go out for dinner or we'll go to the theatre or we'll do something we've been married for I think nearly 13 years now. And I think it's so easy to fall into a bit of a routine where you don't make an effort with each other because quite frankly, life is such an effort that you just want to let your guard down and just flop in front of the TV and not really engage. And I think that it can get a bit dangerous. You make an effort for everyone else in the world and you're really lively and engaging. And then the door is shut and you're like, oh, I'm exhausted. And then you don't engage with your partner. So I think that that absence keeps that excitement in our relationship and genuinely if someone said that Ben could give it all up now and he could just have a London-based job I'd be like mm, no actually that, really thank that's you very interesting much. I mean listen it is difficult to get that balance totally right and I definitely miss him but I think that the fact that I miss him on a regular basis is a really good thing for our relationship I'm also really lucky that I've got his family and my family who live really close. He's got two sisters. I've got two sisters. So I basically have these four sisters who are amazing. And we do a lot together. We're all quite independent women. And we all have partners and husbands who are quite independent too. So as a result, we sort of parent together. And that really, really helps. I think if I was living in an environment where I didn't have that support, his long absences would be much more difficult to deal with. But I rely on my sisters a lot. That's really interesting, isn't it? That idea of, I often talk about this, that we've lost that village. You know, and when some people talk about that, about having family close, I can sometimes feel a pang of envy because I don't have that. So it's really interesting that you've seen the positive and created for yourself, I suppose, a life where you do feel supported and you've got that community around you. And I wanted to ask, because something that I sometimes find when my husband goes away is you've talked about the positivity of that reintegration back into family life. I sometimes find the opposite, actually, that when my husband, he doesn't go away exploring like your stuff, but he sometimes goes away on like a boring work conference or something. Sometimes I can find that reintegration back into family life quite tricky you know if I'm not on top of it I can be a bit spiky do you find that sometimes for What's, sure yeah for sure it really is you know you have your kind of zone don't you and you do things your way and then suddenly they feel like an intruder and you're like well 
no, that's not where I put that. That's not where I keep that. No, this is my house. And so easy to feel that. I think the key for us is acknowledgement that we're both used to living apart and you get used to doing things a certain way. So I acknowledge that I can be a bit spiky and he knows that I don't mean it. It doesn't mean that I don't love him, that I don't want him there. It's just that I've got used to doing things. And I'm so lucky I have married the kindest man. And I know that's what his persona is on TV. I was going to say, he does seem really kind. Is he really? He is. I mean, genuinely, it's not something that I married him for, like, I was in love with him. I was properly in love, in lust, and we we just had such fun together. What I didn't anticipate, which has been so important, is that he is just the kindest person. And I think that, especially when you have children, kindness is so important. You know, it matters so much more than what they look like or what their job is, or that kindness is so crucial. And that is probably the quality that I care about and I'm grateful for the most. I'm not as kind as he is. He is so kind. But what I do do is make sure that he understands how much I appreciate his thoughtfulness and his patience. And uh, he genuinely loves hanging out with the kids. I never have to say, it's your turn to do bath time today. He's like, yeah, I'll do it. He hates being away from the kids. You know, he had this kind of period of travel recently where he was literally away the whole time. And he came back and he said, I'm having a real wobble about work. And I feel like I'm working too much. And other children being scarred by the fact that I'm just not around, you know, not for sports day, not for the school play, not for the parents evening, none of it is he's ever around for. And I said to him, listen, you see the sadness when they go away, but what you don't see is that actually when you're gone and when they get on with life, they are actually really content. Their life is so full of love and people that adore them that it's totally natural for them to feel sad when you leave and to be overjoyed when you come back. But I would be honest with you. And if I felt that their life was a bit low because you weren't there, don't take this the wrong way. It's not that they don't miss you, but they're fine. And I think for him, that was really reassuring, but it was really reassuring for me that that was on his radar and that he didn't blase think, you know, I've got this amazing career and I'm making great TV and that's all that matters because he cares so much about us. Mm. My mum said the same to me. I was talking to her about marrying my husband, Guy. I said, you know, what do you think? She said, well, he seems really kind and that's really all you want. That's what I want for you is just to marry someone kind. Um, and she was right. You know, I have a kind husband as well. But clearly marriage isn't perfect. So, and you've been quite open about the benefits that you two have got from marriage counselling. So can you talk a bit to that about some of the things that you've learned from that and how maybe that's helped you have what seems like a really functional, happy marriage? It's taught us to communicate better. And I think this is very often what happens where relationships fail. It's not that the parents are incompatible. They're just not communicating and understanding each other and don't feel then understood. Ben and I aren't particularly confrontational people. I think by the time we got married, we'd never even had a fight. We just kind of get on really well. Our personality is very compatible. But, you know, there's an inevitable conflict that happens in any relationship. And I remember it meant that when we did fight, it was awful because this never happened. And we were also really bad at fighting. It would end up being a slinging match, hurtful. I remember getting just so upset and having this experience where we'd have a sort of fight about something really ridiculous, like whether or not we should buy new blinds for upstairs or ridiculous. It would be like a week of me having this residual resentment and a headache and feeling like someone had punched me in the face. And I just thought, we need some help here it feels like we've come to a little blip and it's something we can't resolve. And so I think it was talking 
in an environment which is mediated. So you, as you know, it's constructive. You know, it's so easy to get into an argument where you're like, yes, no, yes, no. And you're not going anywhere. But if someone's there going, okay, we've got the stalemate, how can we resolve it? It makes it so much easier for it to be constructive. But I think also what we've become better at is that communication that isn't necessarily just with a marriage counsellor. It's something that we both acknowledge we need to do. And sometimes one of us will need to talk and the other one doesn't know that they do need to talk. So acknowledging that, you know, we can say, let's go for a walk or let's have dinner together or can we sit and have a chat? And letting issues be talked about before they become big issues, little things. And so actually one of the things that we do on a regular basis is try and go for a walk at the weekend, just us two. I think walking and talking is such an amazing way to communicate. It's often so much less intense than sitting across from someone and looking into their eyes. And I think you often have much more constructive conversations. And because we can stay with my parents, we can leave the kids with my parents for an hour, take the dogs and just be in nature. And even if we don't have anything specific that we want to talk about, we always have so much to talk about. And I find that very often after those walks, I'm so glad that I've got onto his page or that I've made him understand how I'm feeling. It's like having a massage when you didn't realise you needed a massage, but you're like, oh my God, I feel so much better. That for us is a really important part of our relationship. But I think, again, you know, the travelling really helps because it means that when he's around, we make a real effort to be with each other. And I think it's so easy to get into this routine of just not communicating when you're taking each other for granted. Mm. Well, that's what I was thinking as I was talking. I was like, God, it's so simple in so many ways, isn't it? Communicating with the person that we're married to, yet with busy modern life, you know, children, you know, the craziness. And as, as you were describing, sometimes it just doesn't happen. And from there, I think I've seen it with, with clients that I work with, both partner telling themselves different stories about what's going on. And as you say, so often it's just about creating that space for each other. So I wanted to ask you about creating space for yourself. Clearly you run a successful business. You've got two children, you've got very full life. How good are you at creating space for you? I talk about it a lot and I definitely think starting the podcast and having this conversation, I have got better and I have acknowledged. I'm one of these women that feels guilty about not working hard enough. I put quite a lot of pressure on myself. Like last night, I was teaching a class till nine o'clock in the evening and my day starts at six when I get up. But I couldn't, like, I find it inconceivable to sit down and read the paper at four o'clock in the afternoon, but that's okay. I'm like, Marina, that is fine. You know, you're, you're working a 15 hour day. It's okay for you to have a little bit of a break. So I am better at granting myself that time out. I find exercise is really good. So I do try and prioritize exercise. I find that physically it just makes me feel so much better. After having children, I had prolapse discs. And the one thing that will prevent that from happening is just keeping strong. So I try and exercise like three or four times a week. And part of that is going for a run in the park with the dogs or with a friend and we can just sit and chat. But very often it is just me and I don't have my phone and I don't have any music. I'm not listening to anything. And that a bit like sort of meditation, I guess it's a form of meditation. It's just allowing myself to be in my thoughts. It's very often the time that I'll have a great idea for a podcast or think that's how I'm going to construct that article that I'm writing, or that's how I'm going to deal with this issue I'm having in my personal life. Or I can often sort myself out on those runs. So I do try and do that. And then weekends, you know, I'm just transforming from that time when my kids just needed me the whole time to actually they're really happy on their own. And especially if we're in the country with their cousins, you know, they're off in the woods having a great time. And I'll literally be like, I can read the whole paper. Oh God, I can't 
wait walk for my these sister. Days. Honestly, it's not that far off. And when it happens, it's just so nice because you're in that perfect hybrid of being around your kids, but not them being just needing you in quite an oppressive way. So I am getting better at it. And we do take quite a lot of holidays because I'm at the stage where, you know, our holidays are so structured now. I know in advance when they're going to be. But I'm also aware that I haven't got that many more years where my kids want to be with me. And they're such a great age. So this summer I'm taking six weeks off and we're going away and we're doing fun stuff. And I've, there is an element of guilt around that. I should really be working six weeks. It seems, you know, really decadent. But you know what? This is my life. I don't get 2019 back and I can afford it. I'm in that lucky position that I can. So why not? Because actually in 15 years time, my kids are going to want to be doing their own things. And then I'll be desperately wanting to spend time with them and wishing that I'd taken that 2019 summer to hang out with them. So that's what I'm doing. Mm. And is there anything that you don't do that you want to do to take care of yourself or your mind or your body? Do you know what? I'm quite a creative person. I love drawing and doing stuff with my hands. And I started doing tapestry. And it's actually a really good thing to do. I find, especially if the kids are doing their homework or they're eating and I'm not eating, they take forever to eat. And I'm often just like sitting at the table going, hurry up, hurry up, and getting really impatient. Want to get it clear, want to get in the bath. Exactly. And then also wanting to eat the food off their plate because you just want them to finish it. And also it's really good food. And so I find having something to do with my hands is a really good way of be still engaging with them. It's not like I'm on Instagram, but I'm doing something with my hands that's occupying me. And actually it's really good for conversation because I'm doing something, but I can be much more patient about conversation. So I'd love to do a bit more of that. I've just started doing calligraphy, which, you know, I love doing that. I'm really rubbish at it, but I really like that sort of creativeness. And I've also started singing in a choir, which I'm really not a very good singer, but it's really lovely just singing once a week and learning new tunes and it's really uplifting and actually it's become a really important and enjoyable part of my week. So I wish I did more of those things. Mm, well, they sound good that you're getting to them at all and I, I agree, I love singing so much. It's... I haven't done my tapestry for about a month now. So, I mean, I wish I did more of these Okay, things. well, that's good to hear. I have <laughs> visions of you every night creating these like beautiful... <laughs> ben walks in, he's like, I feel like I've sort of walked into Victorian Britain and there's sort of... <laughs> Jane Eyre sitting at my table with her needlepoint. <laughs> <laughs> well, I asked the same question at the end of every interview, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mums in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think, and it's something I think about a lot on the bump class. I was trying to sort of sum it up at the end, but I think it would be a sense of humour because it's always fun to be around someone with a sense of humour and people will just gravitate towards you and that will always make life more fun. But I think too, when life gets really tough, when like one thing goes wrong and the other thing goes wrong, you can kind of either cry or you can laugh. And there's something about the physiological act of laughing that gives you more energy and makes you more resilient. And very often those awful situations are quite funny. And listen, I've been in dark, dark times in my life it is still possible to find bits of humour in those really dark stages. So I think that would probably be what I would give to every woman if I could. Mm, Well, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. I love the chat. Thank you for having me. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends, 
that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme which is a three-month program called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.